You've just tuned into the Unify podcast from Unify Youth. Our goal is to equip young people with the Word of God so they can live empowered in Christ and tackle the challenges of this world. Tune in for weekly sermons, devotions, and interviews. Welcome to the Unify podcast. Well, we've been looking at the book of Genesis a book of beginnings. Yesterday we heard from Pastor Andrew about creation, the beginning of everything. We saw how uh, the God of creation, that he is eternal, that he is powerful, and that he is knowable. We then looked at the days of creation, how in six days God formed the heavens and the earth and filled it. And And then on the seventh he rested, Not because he was fatigued, not because he was fatigued, but because he was finished. And we learned that there is a God, that the universe exists because of this God, and that this God who is eternal, who is powerful, and who is knowable is worthy of worship. And this morning, as we study the rest of Genesis chapter 2, we'll pick up from verse 4, we're going to zoom in dramatically on creation In Genesis 1, we see creation from a cosmic, enormous scale. But today in Genesis 2, we will focus in closely on the creation of man on the sixth day. And this passage is really important. It answers for us three of life's most fundamental questions. Who am I? How did I get here? And what is my purpose in life? And our society is confused by these questions. And apart from God who reveals himself in the Bible, we cannot answer these questions definitively. But God, in his grace, has revealed these things to us. And because of that, we don't need to feel anxious. We don't need to feel hopeless. We don't need to feel purposelessness. God inspired Moses to write exactly what happened when he created humanity. And God could do that because God was actually there. God is the one who creates man, who calls man, and who gives companionship to man. And so this morning, as we look at this text, there's three divine initiatives that I want you to see. And by initiatives, I mean that this was all God's doing. All of it was God's doing. It was God's initiative. We'll go through the passage. We'll make three important stops to appreciate what God is doing here. Smelling the three-day-old roses, if you will. And these three initiatives are this. Number one, the creation of man. Found in verse 4 to 14, where God creates man. We learn that we are made in God's image. Number two, the calling of man. We find this in verse 5 to 17, where God calls man. We are made with a purpose. And finally, number three, the companion of man. And that is found in verse 18 to 25. God gives companionship to man. We were made to relate to each other and to God. 
And what God does here at creation, what we learn in this passage, I believe it transforms how we think and how we live. And many of today's controversial issues are solved when we simply understand creation as it is from God's account. We were made to glorify God and enjoy Him. And we do that by bearing His image and exercising dominion. Get this right, and your, lo- your life will have joy, it will have purpose, and it will have true freedom. Let's begin, number one, the creation of man. From verse 4 to 14. Man is a created being. He was created in the image of God. Man was not the product of millions of years of evolution and then one day God stamped an image on him. God made man to be the crowning jewel of his good creation, the climax of creation. We read in verse 5, follow along with me, verse 5, and there was no man to work the ground. So we learn here there was, there was no man. That man is a created being. There was a time when man did not exist. And we learn here that man was made with a purpose. And apart from that purpose, which we'll look at at, at later verses, sorry, part of that purpose, we will get to it, is to work. God made man, according to this verse, to work the ground. Not to serve the ground, but to responsibly reap its blessings that he has provided us through it. And we learn that man has a lowly beginning. Man is formed from the same stuff that the animals were made from, dust. But there is something special about man, and there's something special about how God created man. Verse 7, Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground. And what is expressed here is sudden creation of man. Within a single day, man was created. It did not take God an exceptionally long period of time to get the first single cell organism going and then wait and wait, but God formed man. Adam was one day old, but he was a man. He was mature. And this sounds absurd to the naturalist, but I want you to understand this. This is how the universe was made. It was made quickly with an appearance of age. It was made quickly with an appearance of age. And if you think, how is that possible? I mean, not only are we talking about God, but consider Jesus, who is God, that he did not need to naturally ferment grapes at the wedding of Cana to turn water into wine. And neither did God need to wait for supposedly natural processes to unfold. God is supernatural. We are dealing with the supernatural, holy, most powerful God of the universe. And I don't think it sounds as absurd as that uh, when we consider that. And this word formed here in this verse 7, 
that God formed the man of dust from the ground is so, it's such an interesting word. It conveys three things. It conveys craftsmanship, like a potter forming a pot out of wet clay. Not only does it convey craftsmanship, but it conveys control. God created man out of his power. It was out of his sovereign rule. It also conveys consideration. It was a thoughtful act. It wasn't done on a whim. It didn't happen by accident, but it was intentional. It had a direction, a goal, a purpose. And then see what happened next. The remainder of verse 7, God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living creature. He breathed. And this is a personal and intimate act. Not only was it the work of a considerate, controlling craftsman, it was the act of a deeply personal and intimate God. He breathed into the man's nostrils the breath of life. And this conveys to us a closeness. You have to be close to someone to be affected by their breathing. It conveys a warmth, something that brought life. Of course, only living things breathe. And this teaches us that God does not want to be distant from his creation. God loves his creation. The creation of man was not a work that God just did because he had a schedule to meet or because it was an assignment with a due date. This was a loving, intentional, and gracious act by God. And I want to remind you that God didn't have to do this. God didn't have to create man. But God did it because he is a gracious giver. He is gracious and he gives and he gives. For God so loved the world that he gave. And that was the best gift, by the way, his only begotten son. But God is a gracious giver. He is a sovereign ruler and he is a loving provider. And this new man that God created, who would be the father of all humanity, he was put in the garden, verse 8, God put the man there who he had formed. And his garden was a place where God's grace was extremely concentrated. There were trees of all sorts of good fruit that is not only pleasant to eat, but pleasant to look at, we read in verse 9. We also learn in verse 9 that there would be the tree of life and another tree that would provide a test for Adam, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And verse 10, from the garden, rivers of water flowed. There was life coming and flowing out of the garden. And where the river flowed, verse 11 to 12, there were all sorts of precious stones. This is all the loving grace of God providing abundantly for Adam. And if you know anything about gardening, gardens tend to grow. Things in the garden tend to grow. 
And this is why Adam was placed there, so that the garden would grow and that it would expand and that it would fill the whole earth with God's glory. Creation was very good, but it was not perfect. God said it was very good, but it was not perfect. There was still room to grow. There was still room for expansion. And what needed to take place is man needed to spread God's glory across the whole earth. And so with that, man was created by God. He was placed in the garden by God. And he was blessed abundantly by God. Adam, the man, was the first man. There was no other man before him. And understand this. Adam was a historical person. In the Old Testament, we we learn Genesis 4 and 5, he bore real children, Cain, Abel, Seth. In the New Testament gospel accounts, Jesus' ancestry, or what we call his genealogy, is traced all the way back to Adam in Luke's gospel. And in the New Testament epistles, which are the letters that are written to people and churches, Paul, the Apostle Paul, writes about Adam as a real person in Romans chapter 5 and 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Adam was a real historic person. And not only was Adam the first man, not only was he a real historical person, but Adam was the representative head of humanity. He is the representative head. And what this means is that he represented all of humanity that would come after him. All humanity is represented by and united to Adam. And by his actions of obedience or disobedience, we would come to experience blessings or curses. Turn in your booklets back to Genesis chapter 1, and we're going to just camp in verse 26 to 27 for a few moments. Genesis 1, 26 let us make man in our image, after our likeness. This is what occurred on the sixth day of creation. Man was made unique and as a high point of creation. And we need to stop for a moment. We need to ask an important question. What does it mean to be made in the image of God? And this idea of being made in the image of God, what theologians call the imago Dei, imago meaning image, day meaning God, imago Dei, image of God. This idea is essential to the Christian faith and I believe has tremendous relevance to us today. It's no small thing. But on the basis of this doctrine, we can understand issues like abortion. We can understand issues like assisted suicide, homosexuality, transgenderism, environmentalism, we can understand these issues with, with absolute clarity if we get this right. These aren't confusing issues if we get this chapter of the Bible and this doctrine of the Imago Dei, the image of God, right. So what is it? What is the Imago Dei? What does it mean to be made in the image of God? Well, we need to understand what is being said in verse 2 of chapter 1, let us make man in our image after our likeness. This is what it means to be made in the image of God. By image, it means a representation. A representation. 
when you take a photo on a camera, what you're taking a photo of isn't actually trapped there in the camera, but you're taking a representation of the reality and it's put there on your SD card, but it's a representation, it's not the real thing. This representation is like a, a king who would have a picture of himself or a statue in his kingdom. If you walk around the Sydney CBD, then you'll spot a lot of different statues. Uh, there's a Captain Cook statue in Hyde Park. Of course, there's the Queen Victoria statue outside of Town Hall. There's others, Prince Albert, William Bly, Matthew Flinders. If you find yourself at the New South Wales State Library, then you'll see Matthew Flinders' statue. And my favorite statue is about three meters away from that one. And it's a statue of his cat because he was the first man and first cat to circumnavigate Australia about 200 years ago. And so that cat is memorialized there. Matthew Flinders did a good job because the cat couldn't steer the ship all by himself. Um, but of course, there's a statue for him. But these statues, they're memorials. They're memorials. But some statues in the world, they're reminders. They're reminders of rulership, of authority, of the authority of the king. And those images or those statues, they don't move. They don't have any life in them. But more amazing than that is God creating us to represent him in the world. We are living, breathing representatives of God. And we are to glorify and magnify and display the majesty of the Most High God. And we do that with every action, with every thought. We do as the King commands with gladness. Bearing God's image means that we are representatives. And in bearing His image, we are to spread His glory across the whole world. But this verse also tells us that we are made according to his likeness. His likeness. And what this means is something that is similar to. There is an original, and the original is God. And we are patterned after him. We are his children, and God is our father. Like Adam's son, Seth, was in his father Adam's likeness. But we need to understand that our likeness, our similarity, is not absolute. It is derivative. We are similar in a number of ways. And I'll mention a few of them in a moment. But we're also different. You see, God is omnipresent, which means that he is all present. He is everywhere. We are certainly not. God is also omniscient, which means that he is all-knowing. He knows everything. We certainly do not. God is omnipotent. He is all-powerful in complete control. We certainly are not. He is immutable. He is unchanging. We certainly are not. We change our minds all the time. God is self-existent. There is nothing that created God. He always has been and he always will be. And God is eternal. He is forever outside of time. And so although we share a likeness to God, and we do, we are 
derivative. We are patterned after God. We are not God. But in what ways do we share a likeness to God? Well, we share a likeness to God in our substance. Wayne Grudem, a pastor and theologian, he says, every way in which man is like God is part of his being in the image and likeness of God. And what that means is when we consider that we are capable of love and justice and grace, and of course those are attributes of God, in those ways and many more we are like God. And we can consider our ontology. We are a living being with self-consciousness and personality. We have a soul. We have a body. And while God is spirit, he still sees, he hears, he speaks. And we also see, hear, and speak. But also we can consider our volition. We have the ability to make choices. And we have the ability to work out what is right and what is wrong. That is what it means to have volition. But we also have intellect. We have the ability to think logically, to think critically. We have a mind that we can use to create art, to memorize things, to think mathematically, to learn other languages. We have emotions like God. We experience sadness, happiness, fear, anger, regret, and joy. And our emotions are complex. We can cry when we are sad, or we can cry when we are happy, or sometimes we cry when we are feeling both at the same time. But also we can consider relationship. We have the ability to relate to one another, and we can relate to God. And God relates to himself within the Trinity. This is a quality of God. We give our time, our energy, our emotions, our love, our attention to one another and to God. And also we, consider, we can consider ourselves functionally. Our bodies are functional. They can do things. We have legs to walk around and arms to pick things up. We have the ability to reproduce, to work, and to do things. And all of these aspects are part of what it means to be human, to be made in God's image. And it's not that we're an exact replica of God, but we share or derive certain qualities and certain attributes. So God created humanity in his image to be his representatives and to possess his likeness. And that sets us apart from all other created animals, from all other creatures. He made us quickly and he made us tenderly. He formed us sovereignly and breathed into us personally. Number two, the calling of man. We'll be reading from verses 15 to 17. What you need to understand is that God created man for a purpose. We are not meaningless life forms. We are not a cosmic accident. We are made for a purpose. And this is our purpose, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And we do this by bearing his image and exercising dominion. 
Read verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. God picked the man and he put him in the garden. And this was the command to work it. That tells us that work is valuable, that God instructs work. And understand this, work is part of the pre-fall condition of man. Work is not a result of the fall. It was not sunshine and roses kicking back playing video games before the fall. It was work. And working is part of being made, of, uh, being, of bearing God's image. We work in part because God works. He continues to work. He sustains. He creates. He knits together in mother's wombs. Psalm 139. And he also says that the man is to keep it. He is to protect the garden. And so we need to get out of our heads that Eden and eternity with God is going to be sitting around doing nothing or doing your favorite hobby. God made us for work. In the beginning, he did that. At the moment, he tells us to do that. And after the Lord Jesus Christ returns, we'll be working to the glory of God. Of course, we will be able to relax. There is a day of rest that God instructs. But most of our work, most of our week is to be filled with work. Read verse 16 to 17. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in that day you eat of it, you shall surely die. Notice that the animals weren't issued this command because there was something special about man. There is a special purpose that is distinct from any other created thing. And though, even though that's the reality, man is still lower than the self-existent God. And this passage, it mentions the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And it's probably called this because it was, it was to test Adam and Eve whether they would be obedient to God or whether they would disobey God. In verse 16, God blesses Adam by providing for him abundantly. He gives every tree to eat. And this can continue if Adam is obedient to God. But God also gives Adam a command. He gives him a law. He says, you cannot eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And if Adam disobeys God, there is a curse he says, in that day you eat of it, you will surely die. And this death that is talked about here is not an immediate physical death, but it does usher in impending physical death of the physical body, aging and decaying. But the immediate death that takes place here, certainly that day they surely did die spiritually. It was a spiritual death that immediately took place. Adam would die spiritually. He would immediately be cut off from God spiritually. And the freedom that Adam enjoys being in the presence of God, talking with God, uh, being loved by God and receiving blessings from God would be cut off immediately. So Adam obeyed. 
He made the smart choice, at least for a time. Verse 20, the man gave names to all livestock and to all birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. And this was part of Adam's purpose. This is part of his work. And it is him exercising dominion or rulership by giving names. Authority was given to Adam. And in this way, God was showing Adam that he is greater than any of the animals. And what do we learn back in chapter 1? Flip back to verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. First, God makes man in his image and then he charges man. Part of being made in God's image is having dominion or subduing. And this means to have a rulership over these things and to use them wisely. Man will be God's representative in having dominion over the rest of creation. And so ruling puts man's authority greater than anything else within creation. Paul calls it a grave sin when humanity worships and serves the creature rather than the creator. We serve God by exercising rulership over creation in subordination to God who grants us that authority and it's for his glory. Psalm chapter 8 verse 6 to 9 tells us, you have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. This sounds familiar, right? Verse 9, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. What is man's response to dominion to be? Is dominion to drive man to glorifying himself? No. But certainly we do that, don't we? Sinful as we are, but no, it's not glorifying self, it's glorifying God. How majestic is your name in all the earth. Chapter 1, verse 28 to 30 tells us, and God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, verse 29, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food and to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth Everything that has breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And this is another blessing and command by God to rule over all of creation as his representatives. And ruling over creation involves two things. Firstly, working productively, subduing. And that means getting things in order 
to manage things, to cover the earth with God's influence and God's blessings for God's glory. So it involves subduing, working productively, but it also involves procreation, being fruitful and multiplying. And that is to fill the earth with more people who will help to carry out this task and to bring glory to God. God made humanity with a purpose. Humanity was not merely an accident or an afterthought, but it was a purposeful decision by God. And God calls humanity to a purpose, to subdue the earth and to have dominion over the earth and to fill it. God didn't need to make us. He's already perfectly capable of doing everything himself. But out of his eternal love, he made us to share in his goodness and to share in his grace. To put it simply, we were made for two reasons and we do this by two means. We were made to glorify God. Isaiah chapter 43 verse 7 tells us, we are called by God's name, formed and made created for his glory. Ephesians 1, 11 to 12 tells us that we were predestined to hope in Christ, to the praise of God's glory. And 1 Corinthians 10, 31 says, whatever you eat or drink, do it all to God's glory. We were made to glorify God. But secondly, we were also made to enjoy God. We were made to enjoy God. Psalm 1611 says, In his presence is fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. Psalm 84 verse 1 to 2 says, My soul longs to be with God, and my heart sings for joy to the living God. And Isaiah 62 5 tells us that God actually enjoys us too. It says, as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall God rejoice over you. So we are to glorify God and we are to enjoy God. And we do this by two means that we have already looked at. We do this by bearing his image. That means representing him in the world and displaying his likeness. And we do this, secondly, by having dominion, which means to fill the earth and to subdue it. The worldview that our society teaches is that we are a product of chance, that we came about by blind luck. Grown up germs is what some people say. And if this is true, that we are part of a cosmic accident, then we will instantly lose all purpose. We instantly lose all purpose. And this leads to unprecedented numbers of depression, of anxiety, and of suicide. If we subscribe to this godless worldview that we are merely a product of chance, then depression, anxiety, laziness, suicide, hedonism, existentialism, materialism, and nihilism are all the logical conclusions. But what does God say? What does God say? God says 
he formed us. He is mighty and he formed us. And he breathed life into us. He wants to be close to us. He made us not on a whim, not because he was bored, not by accident, but he made us with a purpose. And this is our purpose, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And we do this by bearing his image and exercising dominion. So don't believe the lies of the devil. God made you for his glory and his good pleasure. Finally, number three, the companion of man. The companion of man, verses 18 to 25. God saw that Adam was alone. And he saw that Adam should not be alone. Part of being made in God's image is to exercise dominion. And another part is companionship, which helps with filling the earth. Read chapter 2, verse 18 to 20 with me. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone, but I will make man a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would, what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. In contrast to creation being good, which we learnt was said seven times by God, it now says it is not good that man should be alone. God already knew the solution to the problem, of course, but he delayed providing it for a time. God says, I will make him a helper fit for him. And this idea of helper is not simply an assistant, but it is a helper that fits. It is a counterpart. It is somebody to compliment Adam. Not to say nice things, but to fulfill what Adam lacked to fulfill Adam's deficiency. It is to be his companion. So who will be Adam's companion is the question. And what we see in this passage is that God first brings animals before Adam. But of course, none of them were a suitable helper. And it's as if God was putting all of the animals before Adam so that Adam would learn that none of them, none of them are a suitable helper for him. And that's the point. They're too different from Adam. They're not similar enough. The animals are too different. They're not similar enough. Adam needed a counterpart that was similar enough to him, not like all the animals, and yet different to him, not another man. None of the animals nor another man would be fit to help Adam fulfill his purpose of subduing the earth and filling the earth, both a part of having dominion. But like God knew the problem Adam had, God also knew the solution, and God would be the one to provide it. Verse 21 to 22. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its, its place with flesh. 
And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and he brought her to the man. And this divine surgery was the initiative of God. God took one of Adam's bones, his rib, and he formed it, same language, into a woman. And like the animals, the woman was presented to Adam. Though unlike the animals, this woman was exactly what Adam needed. She too was made in the image of God. She too was valuable, she was beautiful, and she was dignified. She was beyond anything that Adam could possibly imagine. And the literal reading of this text is that she is a help opposite him or corresponding to him. She is the perfect counterpart, filling what Adam was lacking. She is like him, but opposite him. As Solomon said in Ecclesiastes, two are better than one, for if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. And author Douglas Kelly so beautifully says it like this, marital sexuality contributes to the fullness of what it means to be created in the image of God. By their own interpersonal relationship, they would experience some reflection of the interior relational life of the personal God himself. In other words, the companionship that man and woman enjoy in marriage together is an experience that is even a small reflection of what, what God experiences within himself, of what God experiences within the Trinity. The woman was everything that the man was lacking in companionship. Truly, she was a helper that was fit for him. And how did Adam respond to this tremendous blessing? We see verse 23. Then the man said, this at last, forget all the other animals, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. At last, Adam cries. He erupts in adoration at the provision, the creation, the presentation of the woman by God. And it's interesting that this is the first thing recorded that the man actually says. It's nothing short of adoration and of worship for God, for his provision. Adam was not worshipping the woman. He was worshipping God. The woman didn't make herself. Adam didn't make the woman. God made the woman independent of Adam's will, while Adam was even asleep. And Adam, we should all take a note, he responds correctly here to God's provision and God's blessing. This is one instance where the representative head of humanity made the right choice. He worshipped God. He glorified God. He enjoyed God and his blessings. When we receive grace 
and blessings from God, this ought to be our response. A heart that erupts in praise and worship towards God. Adam named her woman because she was taken out of man. Literally, she was bone of his bones. Literally, she was flesh of his flesh. And literally, was she taken out of man. And this is reflected in her name. In the original language, but even in English, the root or source word for woman is man. Just like the source of woman in this instance is from man. And this account is the biblical basis for gender. This is the biblical basis for gender. Not only for gender, but for complementarity. How husband and wife is to relate to one another. And also it's the biblical basis for sexuality. How husband and wife are to sexually relate to each other. Read verse 24 to 25. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed. What we read here in God's account of creation is the basis for humanity, for our purpose, for our companionship, even for marriage. The completion of God's creation of man and woman culminates in the first ever marriage in the world. And it begins with the words, therefore, therefore, on this basis. Like the Sabbath, the seventh day of rest is patterned after creation, so too is marriage. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. They become a new enterprise. And this idea of holding fast is permanence. This is why at weddings, you've probably heard people say, what God has joined together, let not man separate. Because this union that is taking place is designed to be permanent and unbreakable. And they shall become one flesh, says God. The two become one. There is a wholeness, a completion in the marriage union Part and counterpart come together to make a whole. They complete each other in order to complete their purpose, to fill the earth, being fruitful and multiplying. It would be impossible for one of them to do this without the other and also to subdue it, which is to spread God's glory across the earth. This is marriage as God designed marriage. One man and one woman in permanent union together. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This teaches us that because God's creation was good, there was no knowledge of sin, there was no shame, there was no guilt. Even in their nakedness, they were innocent, unashamed. It's not because they were happy with their bodies, because they had enough self-love for themselves, it's because God had made them and they were good without sin. Everything was good. The idea to sin was not conceived by man or the woman. It had to come from somewhere else. And it did. 
Genesis 1.27. This is the last verse that we'll be looking at. So God created man in his image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God tells us the divine design for marriage. He tells us his design for gender, male and female, and for sexuality, one man and one woman. And anything, anything that goes against God's design is sinful. It is rebellion against the designer, against the creator. And by the way, when humanity has done that, look at where it has led. So we need to understand who we are, who made us, and what we are to do from what God tells us. Both Adam was made in the image of God, and the woman was made in the image of God too. Men and women are both of equal value, both a perfect counterpart to the other in their biology, in their personality, in their various roles. Men and women have an inherent dignity, not because of anything that we have done, but because God created us in his magnificent image. And I believe that our society has lost that. Our society has lost that. And what has resulted is that we scramble around to find meaning in our work, in our possessions. But without God, it leads to only three responses. It leaves us feeling empty, but it leads to these three responses. Hedonism, which means chasing after whatever feels good. Or it leads to nihilism, giving up because nothing matters. Or it leads to escapism. I won't think about the meaninglessness of life until it catches up to me. But with God, with God, we have a purpose. We have value. We have dignity. And we have a hope in the Lord Jesus Christ that cannot be broken. And we can find true joy we can find a true purpose and we don't need to run and hide. We can experience true freedom in how God has designed everything to be. To conclude, our purpose is simple, but its effects are far reaching. Our purpose is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And we do this by bearing his image and exercising dominion. You know, our society says that these things are bad. They say that man is but a speck of dust in an enormous universe. Man is nothing but a grown-up germ. That our lives don't have an inherent purpose. And we ought to find our own purpose in life before the sun explodes and our world and everything and everyone in it is going to die. They say to glorify yourself, to exalt yourself, to follow your dreams, to follow your heart, to be the master of your life and captain of your soul, to enjoy yourself, to enjoy life while you can. Don't deny any lust or desire of your heart. And this is a direct attack 
on the purpose to glorify God and enjoy God forever. And our society even says that you descended from a common ancestor to apes, that you're just a primate. The only image that you bear is your own. Aren't you a monkey's uncle? You came about by natural selection and millions of years of adaptation. And they say that you can take a life before he or she exists, exits their mother's womb, even afterwards if they were unsuccessful the first time. They say that you can assist someone with a serious illness to commit suicide. Our society loves to kill image bearers in the name of personal freedoms because I can't have you infringing on my self-made purpose. But this is a direct attack by the devil on bearing God's image. Our society says that we need to stop industry, to stop exercising dominion, shut down factories, limit industrial progress, because if we don't, temperatures will rise and the world will become uninhabitable for us. But God says, have dominion. And I am sovereign over the world and its climate, says God. What we read in Genesis about our origins, our purpose, our condition and our redemption, I hope you understand and you can see, is so counter to the world's thinking. Our origins come from God. Our value comes from God. Our purpose comes from God. And it is we are being sustained by God. Every good gift comes from God and he wants us to trust him to provide. Our purpose is simple, glorify God and enjoy God. And doing it is simple, bear his image and exercise dominion. And if we get this right, then we will have true joy, true purpose and true freedom. So I ask you to consider which worldview do you subscribe to? Because only one of them can be right. Is it the godless worldview that says that you are nothing and that life is nothing and that we came from nothing? Or is it the biblical worldview that says you are made with a purpose to glorify God and enjoy him forever? Jesus Christ, the God-man, truly God and truly man. He says in John chapter 10, verse 10, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Is Jesus Christ the one that you trust him? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you that you make yourself knowable. You tell us where we come from, what our purpose is. And Lord, you have blessed us abundantly. Ever since creation, you have blessed us abundantly. You continue to fill us, to, to uh, pour grace upon grace on us. And Lord, so often our response is not worship. We can feel like we're entitled. But Lord, may we worship you. May we recognize the goodness, the good gifts that we do not deserve, but that you give to us. May we stand firm 
in a society that says that we are nothing. And may we say, no, we were made with a purpose to glorify you and enjoy you forever. May we be image bearers and may we exercise dominion. Lord, would you help us and help us to trust in your son who gives life and who gives it abundantly. In Jesus' name, amen.